0: Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Is there a ticking time bomb with regards to improper filings done by a large number of qualified opportunity funds? Joining me on the show today to discuss this topic and more is Kirk Walton, co-founder and managing partner at GPWM Funds, a group of private equity real estate funds with expertise in tax-advantaged real estate investing. Kirk joins us today from Eagle, Idaho. Kirk, how you doing? Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, great to be on your show. Appreciate the invite. Uh, doing great.
0: Absolutely, Kirk. Uh, great to have you here with me today. Uh, we first met a while back at the Novogradic Opportunity Zones Conference in Long Beach earlier this year. We were sitting together at lunch. I remember uh, eating our lunch at the in that in that room with all those tables there. I got seated uh, at your table and. You described a pretty major problem to me that I was unaware of. And it was a problem that you described at the time as I remember this a ticking time bomb. And the problem deals with qualified opportunity funds improperly filing their returns, specifically their forms 8996 with the IRS, or they were improperly filing the underlying qualified opportunity zone business entities with the IRS. And these improper filings can have huge negative consequences for investors in these funds. And investors can oftentimes be caught completely unaware of these issues until many years later. So, Kirk, can you, I kind of hinted at it a little bit, but can you describe the problem in in greater detail and characterize the nature of it? Sure. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, Great intro. Uh what happened was the IRS issued the form
1: 8996 and 8997 for the first time uh, just before the 2019 tax return filing season. Uh, and I'm sympathetic to the CPAs and other tax professionals who are in this spot. I prepared tax returns for more than 20 years as part of our wealth management practice and family office practice. Uh, and I sympathize with this. Uh, and opportunity zones are a little bit complicated, and and at the time of the 2019 return, still very brand new. Um, you, I'm sure your listeners to the podcast know that there's a QOF qualified opportunity fund that invests in a QOZB the underlying the qualified opportunity zone business. Uh, almost all of those are partnerships. So when the tax preparer goes to fill out the tax return for the Qualified Opportunity Zone business, and he comes across a brand new form, the 8996, the top of which has this question, is this entity organized for the purpose of investing in Qualified Opportunity Zone property other than another Qualified Opportunity Zone fund? The answer to that question, if you are a Qualified Opportunity Zone business, is yes. And that's the confusion, the Form 8996, is the IRS's mechanism for uh, certification that this entity is a qualified opportunity fund. But the way the form was drafted is misleading and confusing. Uh, A CPA could uh, read that question number two and go, well, this is a qualified opportunity zone business entity return I'm working on. The answer is yes, the qualified opportunity zone business entity has to own qualified opportunity zone property. So he might he or she might check yes on that form, but uh, in an abundance of caution, to try to tell the IRS that this is a QOZB. There is no comparable form for a QOZB. There is only a form for a QOF, not a form for a QOZB. If you file every re- QOZB return correctly, there's no mention of qualified opportunity zone property. There's no eighty-nine ninety-six form to attach.
0: But you, this you is essentially the first have, you essentially have to just file a QOZB as though it's just a regular a partnership or, or, or a corporation, whatever it's structured as typically a partnership, right? You just file it as a normal right. Correct. entity. Okay.
1: Correct. Uh, I've spoken with CPAs who in an abundance of caution to try to tell the IRS that this is a QOZB return that owns qualified opportunity zone property, uh, check the box. The consequence of that is now this QOZB return and the EIN associated with it ended up on a list inside the IRS database of QOF qualified opportunity fund entities. One of the rules about qualified opportunity funds is you cannot have a QOF invest in another QOF. Um, Then there was that report that came out just before we got together uh, in two thousand and twenty-two in February of twenty-two. Uh, there was a report, an audit report, that went through and looked at opportunity zone fund returns for the year 2019, the first year that this form was available, and it found 6.4 uh, percent of the QOF returns from 2019 reported investments in other QOFs. That was th- over 340 QOF returns for that year, and uh, that covered 1.3 billion dollars of gains that people had reported as qualified gains rolling over into a QOF that the IRS had basically said would be disallowed potentially because the QOF reported holdings in another QOF. Uh, That was the ticking time bomb is the IRS had reported this finding in this report, but had not yet announced any mechanism to try to correct this. Uh, We became aware of this issue because one of the QOZBs that we invested in, uh, unbeknownst to us, uh, their CPA did what I described, an abundance of caution, check the box to report the QOZBs as QOFs. They got notices, they sent us the 2019 K1s, but not the full return. The K1s don't mention anything about this being a QOF or electing, you know, or certification that it was a QOF. So we didn't know anything about this, but unbeknownst to us, they did that And then they got a notice uh, from the IRS and then they tried to correct it by uh, requesting a private letter ruling. And the IRS sent the private letter ruling request back along with a refund of the fees saying there is no regulatory election involved in certification to become a COAF. And so there was no regulatory election that could be reversed or granted through a private letter ruling avenue. So you have this problem Where QOZBs elected, you know, or check the box, certified that they are a QOF, and how do you undo that? Uh, And that that was the issue we talked about over lunch at that uh, great uh, Novogradic conference in Long Beach. Uh, Since that time, in April of this year, the IRS uh, mailed out a ton of letters, a sixty-five hundred one letter and sixty-five hundred two letter to the individual investors. Uh, and to the QOFs affected by that, that basically said, hey, hey, your QOF reports holdings in another QOF. Maybe you didn't fill out this form correctly. Um, you know, Here's a phone number to reach out to try to correct it. Or you might consider filing an amended return or an administrative adjustment request or an AAR, which is a cumbersome and lengthy process. Um, we don't yet know how many returns from 2020 ha- or 2021 have this problem. Uh, All we know is at least 6% of the returns in 2019 had the problem, and that's $1.3 billion from just 2019. I suspect there's even more um, from 2020 and 2021. Uh, Anecdotally, I've heard uh, some people in the industry who were able to reach the IRS through that phone number on the form and get a call back within a couple weeks and have theirs corrected. Uh, in our situation, we still do not have confirmation that our situation has been corrected. The situation with that group, um, with the project in Washington that I mentioned, um, they have tried to reach the IRS. Uh, they've sent all, you know, you know they've sent uh, uh, multiple requests for relief and uh, getting that, you know, certification revoked. Uh, and, but it, it, there is no, cur- currently there is no, mechanism to revoke a certification of becoming a QOF. It just, you know, the regulations say reserve, like, you know, they're going to come out with those rules later, but they still haven't. So we're confident that the IRS will uh, see um, that just because someone elected or checked its box isn't the only factor that goes into whether uh, an entity is a QOF or not. All of the other factors about these entities show that they are, in fact, QOZBs. Their operating documents say they must be a QOZB. Uh, the sole purpose is formed to be a QOZB. Uh, the holdings are QOZBs. So there's all of these other facts and factors that show uh, these entities are, in fact, QOZBs. The only factor that shows they're not is an erroneous, elect- erroneous uh, checking the box on uh, the 2019 return. And they didn't include those forms on the 2020 return or 2021 return. So, you know, that should be an indication that uh, they did not, in fact, want to certify as QFs. Nevertheless, uh, I think that problem is widespread, and I don't think it's being talked about too much. Uh, And I I think the IRS needs a better avenue for correcting that type of clerical mistake, especially on uh, a complex area where... It's a brand new form. You know, if if you opened up a new national park and sent out instructions and paths of where to go hiking and, uh, you know, 6% of the hikers fell off a cliff to their deaths, uh, that would be a problem, I think, with the instructions and the signposts rather than uh, an example of human error that needed to be punished by complete disallowing of the uh gain being eligible gain and that's really what you've got going on and uh so i think there needs to be a better mechanism an easier mechanism to correct that but we'll see
0: yeah it's it's a huge issue as you point out over one i think it was 1.3 billion dollars is from just 2019 and that yeah i was going to point that out that's just 2019 so if you extrapolate from there there wasn't a whole lot of fundraising in twenty nineteen compared with twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one as this program continued to grow. And you know, I, I'll, I'll throw up a link to the Novagratic uh, report that shows how that fundraising has increased. I mean, maybe uh, I might speculate that the percentage of funds filing may have gone down as CPAs became more familiar with filing. but the sheer quantity, of funds being filed probably um more than made up for the the percentage going down i would i would assume that 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 there's there's far more capital in jeopardy of being disqualified as as eligible under the opportunity zone provision to uh, receive all the tax benefits based on what we might see coming through 20 and, and 21 is that right
1: that's right i i absolutely think there's billions of dollars at stake uh And uh, I think that the IRS owes it to uh, the investing public to uh, have a mechanism to correct that type of mistake, which, you know, frankly, they caused by having a question on the form, you know, a QSDB should answer that question. Yes. Accurately answers the question. Yes. A QSDB is formed for the purpose of holding qualified opportunities on property. Right. So that's the first question on that form that causes this issue.
0: Yep. Uh, Understood. And uh the yeah there's just a huge amount of funds being impacted by this um and i think if, uh, essentially what you're advocating for kirk is there needs to be some sort of easy way for a qof to elect to decertify is is that what you're getting at
1: that's, or to go back in time and say that was an erroneous election. You know, uh, right. If you make a mistake on a return, you can file an amended return to correct it. That's a cumbersome process for a partnership that's an AAR, um, and that's a lot of AAR requests. But maybe that's what the IRS wants. Uh, that's what we've encouraged people to do because uh, that's the best I can come up with. this
0: Uh, maybe this is why they're adding an additional 80,000 plus agents. Is that right? I I jest, but. (laughs) Who knows? The other fix is uh, you've spoken at length uh, uh,
1: about the uh, pending legislation that's been introduced to extend and enhance the Opportunity Zone tax legislation. One Mm -hmm. of the provisions in that pending legislation is to allow a COAF to invest in another COAF. Uh, and that would be retroactive to day one. So this issue would also go away if that legislation passes, which we hope it will.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point. If that legislation passes as currently written, um, Correct. they would just completely dissolve this problem entirely. Is that right? That's right. Okay, good. Well, um, so there's some potential solutions out there, but it's still a little bit hairy <laughs> in the interim period, especially if you're an investor who's gotten one of those letters from the IRS. Um, when when might investors in or funds be made aware of these potential mistakes that were made in tax year 2020 or, or 2021? Do you have any indication?
1: I would assume uh, next year because uh, we assuming they're on a similar cycle, uh, we've got the notices from April that went out to all of the investors and funds uh, late April. It was at the end of April or 1st of May when those 6501 letters went out. So if you're listening to this podcast and you got one of those letters, that's what it's about most likely. And most likely it's a, an easy fix when you can get the attention of the right person inside the IRS uh, to fix it. But I can understand the consternation and anxiety that an investor would have when they get a letter that says, you're gain that you thought was eligible gain is at risk of not being allowed as eligible gain you know which means you owe tax from way back when when you rolled over the gain, and penalties and all of that on top of and blowing up your coif investment i mean the the consequences are draconian uh, if you read the um you know the black and white on the letter but it's a honest mistake made in good faith uh, by CPAs and tax professionals who were trying to tell the IRS these are QOZBs who own qualified opportunities on property
0: sure sure uh but I'll bet it still resulted in a lot of angry phone calls to fund managers and CPAs and I, I guess I would I would encourage if you're in a if, a if you are a QOF investor uh in 2020 or 2021 or this year maybe call up you know, feel free to call up that fund manager and <laughs> ask him, "Hey, did we file this stuff correctly? Did we file the QOZBs as QOZBs or as QOFs? And uh, how do these letters potentially impact me?" Make sure uh, you have those conversations before you get a letter. But uh, again, hopefully, there's some solution. I, I'm I'm hopeful that there's going to be some solution to this uh, at some point. But uh, as I, as I mentioned a moment <laughs> ago, it's a little bit hairy in the in the moment, right?
1: Yeah, I'm too. You know, the other issue uh, from tax compliance and ta- uh, reporting these forms correctly that I think is often overlooked is the special gain code box on the form 8997.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I don't know if you've talked about that on one of your podcasts before, but uh, uh, we get a lot of investors who roll over capital gain from stocks, but also a lot who roll over capital gain from sale of passive activities like uh, real you know, real estate. Uh, you probably know when the gain comes back on your 26 return or potentially the 28 return, if we get the legislation passed, that's pending, as drafted when that gain comes back, it has the same character as the capital gain that was originally deferred uh, into the QOF. The way to track that kind of character of gain is on a special gain code box on the form 8997 that you attach to your 1040 every year that you maintain your, holding in any QoS. And if you mark that box B, uh, that indicates that the gain was from the sale of some depreciable property, uh, such as from the sale of a passive activity. Uh, Why that is important uh, is because on your 26 return, if the gain that comes back is from the sale of passive activity, you can offset that gain with any passive losses that you may have from any sources whatsoever. Um, We also talked in the past about how our projects, we do a lot of rehab projects. We do some new construction, but most of our projects are rehab projects. And we like rehab projects because we're able to get more depreciation deductions in the early years through cost segregation studies and through qualified improvement property, uh, which generate an enormous amount of passive losses in the early years uh, because of the accelerated depreciation deductions. Uh, and if you're an investor in a, a cloth that does rehab projects and generates a lot of passive losses and you don't have other passive activities, well, then those passive losses roll forward, roll forward, roll forward, and when 26 return comes around, the capital gain from the sale of a passive activity comes back, but your passive losses uh, have, p- have piled up in, from the early years and they wash against each other. So it's potential uh, for a real estate investor to sell real estate generate the capital gain not pay any tax now by rolling it into a qof and also not pay any tax or very little tax in 2026 because of the uh, passive losses that are generated between now and then um, yeah. and then and then own the real estate for 25 years generate additional depreciation deductions which have real monetary value and then not pay tax on the depreciation recapture. That's one of the hidden gems that you've talked about on your podcast. And one of the hidden gems is there's no depreciation recapture, but there are ways to utilize that depreciation and uh, accelerate it into the early years. Uh, Like I said, through cost segregation studies and through QIP deductions and things like that, uh, to generate those losses in the early years. So you can offset the gain that comes back on your 26 return if it's gained from the sale of um, rental real estate or passive real estate that is yeah. possible only if your tax preparer marks the special gain code box b on the form 8997 that's how you tell the irs this is that type of gain gain from the sale of stock or collectibles or cryptocurrency you don't get this offset you will get the benefit of the depreciation deductions eventually either from other stuff you've got if you've got passive activity uh, you know income from other holdings, or at the worst case scenario, you get the benefit when the asset is finally disposed of, then these passive losses that have been accelerated and generated over time, uh, they get freed up when you sell the asset. So everybody gets the benefit of the depreciation deductions at some point in time. uh, But the people who roll over gain from sale of real estate, that's a huge benefit in that it reduces, if not eliminates the 26 tax bill.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible uh, tax mitigation strategy there, and uh, you know I want to talk more with you about that strategy and and some of the other investment strategies that you're using at GPWM funds in a minute. But you know you mentioned one other thing there, which was uh, you casually slipped in a 25 year hold period, which I thought, huh, that's a long time. I thought this was only supposed to be 10 years. Uh, what's with the 25? That seems like way too long. But that kind of leads me into my next topic I wanted to talk with you about, Kirk. And I've mentioned this on my podcast in the past, which is this concept of thinking about qualified opportunity fund investing as a super Roth IRA. And essentially, it's tax-free growth for 10 years. But why stop at 10 years? Can can you tell us more about your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. You know, I've been advocating for that from day one. uh, And uh, I remember before COVID, uh, KPMG reached out to me and invited me to come present at uh, one of their conferences, an Opportunism Conference uh, at their San Francisco offices. Uh, And I remember this vividly because I was on a panel uh, at this KPMG conference uh, and uh, the guy to my left answered all the questions very similarly uh, to me in terms of rehab projects are great. Uh, Cost segregation studies are important. Uh, This is a great estate planning uh, tool. It dovetails so nicely with the multi-generational wealth transfer strategies. And their game plan was 10 years in a day and then exit. And mine was, let's hold it for much longer. Uh, And I remember a guy in the audience raised his hand is like, I'm confused why, Kirk, your answer is hold it so long and your answer uh is you know go only 10 years uh and the guy to my left answered and said well that's what our ppm says and so that's what the investors signed up for and i said uh, that's fine there probably are some investors who only want 10 years of tax-free growth but our investors want longer than that uh it's like if you open a roth ira and your investment advisor said, as soon as you have owned this for five years and attained at age 59 and a half, we are, our plan is to liquidate the Roth IRA uh, because we can totally liquidate it tax-free at that point in time. Uh, nobody does that with Roth IRAs. We, but five years and age 59 and a half is the bare minimum needed to completely cash out tax-free. Similarly, for an Opportunity Zone fund, the bare minimum to completely cash out tax-free is 10 years of holding. But from a financial planning or wealth management approach, why would you liquidate something when you hit the bare minimum tax timeline if it can continue to grow tax-free, if it can continue to throw off depreciation deductions that you don't have to pay depreciation recapture on? Why stop at 10 years when you can go for 25? As long as you liquidate this before the end of 2047, all of those additional depreciation deductions are tax-free. All the growth between now and 2047 is tax-free. If you cash out at year 10, you've missed 15 years of additional tax-free growth. You know, I've seen presentations from Opportunity Zone Funds where they talk about when you pay the tax, you're at a fork in the road. You can go down this one road and pay your tax now, and then you have less money invested, and where you invest it, it, it's also going to be subject to tax, or you should invest in an Opportunity Zone fund because you can grow for 10 years and not be subject to tax, and that's better. Well, when you hit the 10-year mark, essentially, you're, you're at a very similar fork in the road. You can choose to cash out, and it's tax-free after 10 years, but where you invest it is going to be subject to taxation, or you can use the logic that you used from day one and continue to hold it in an opportunity zone fund, where it won't be subject to tax and it will generate depreciation deductions that are not subject to depreciation recapture. The smart money goes for the longer term hold. Uh, a lot of investors get scared though when they think of something that long. They think I'm never going to see any money between now and 25 years. That's you know that's not right. Uh, and people forget that the opportunity zone fund can generate cash flow it can return money to the investors tax-free in an incredibly tax-efficient stream of cash flow long before the 25 years, long before the 10 years. We have some projects. Uh, we have one project where we bought a Sears, uh, old Sears building, uh, and came with this huge parking lot that we didn't need. We sold off the pad of the parking lot uh, and did a cash out refi. We've already returned all of our investors' money from that project within two years, completely tax-free. Now, each of our investors had the choice of whether to take that money out of their fund when it went from the QOZB back to the QOF. If they wanted that money, they could have taken that money out to their checking account completely tax-free and done whatever they wanted with it. All of our investors elected to defer that gain, keep it inside or defer that cash flow, keep it inside their QOF and reinvest it in another Opportunity Zone project and another Opportunity Zone project. That's another wrinkle where it's a super Roth. It's not just the long-term hold potential of 25 years. It's also the reinvestment strategy. As far as I know, we're still the only ones that are talking about the impact of reinvesting. If you have a Roth IRA and you have a stock that pays a dividend, you can tell your broker to send that dividend check to your checking account where you can invest it somewhere where it'll be subject to tax. Who does that? Hmm. Nobody. Instead, when the Holdings inside your Roth IRA generate cash flow in the form of interest or dividends or capital gains. You hold it and you buy more stock or mutual funds or ETFs inside your Roth IRA. The Opportunity Zone Fund regulations explicitly allow for that. In fact, they give you 12 months to come up with a game plan for what to do with the cash flow from, uh, like I mentioned, from the sale of a pad or something like that. Uh, you can in- hold it inside your tax shelter QOF. And go into another Opportunity Zone project and another Opportunity Zone project. So in the example of that uh, you know, former Sears building I mentioned, we still own that. It's now a self-storage building, uh, nearly complete, going to be operational. It's going to generate cash flow, going to generate depreciation deductions, going to appreciate over 25 years. We still own that, but we've taken all of our money out and put it into another project that's also in the Opportunity Zone i going to do the same thing, uh, lease it up, do a cash out refi, recycle the money into another project and into another project and another project, all within the same opportunity zone fund. So the original investor doll, you know, for each dollar of an investor that goes into one of our funds, if they don't need the cash flow, they can recycle into another and another and another project, and generate this wide footprint of properties that are diversified, that will. Uh, continue to grow tax-free and depreciation deductions, throwing off tax-free with no depreciation caption for 25 years. Much more tax-efficient than the typical structure you see where somebody throws in money and the uh, fund manager returns the money out. You know, it's like taking the dividend check out of your Roth IRA and sending it to your checking account. There's no need to do that. And the smart money doesn't do that.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. With regards to a Roth IRA and and a dividend coming back, you don't want to hit in your checking account. You want it to go back into the uh, to the IRA. I, I I love I love that concept, and I think I think sometimes it's a it's a tough sell the Opportunity Zone program because a lot of capital coming in is from investors who aren't used to holding periods that long. This program's meant for patient capital, really. I mean, you need to be aware of the fact that it's illiquid. You're not going to get your money back for ten years or oh, you're not going to get your principal back for 10 years I should say but it does it can spit off cash flow as you mentioned you can do refinance distributions uh, there are ways around that even too so um yeah great- and don't forget
1: the cash flow from operations well yeah. it can also be distributed tax free so we yeah. have two uh, we're on our we're raising capital now for our 10th opportunity zone fund so we've been doing this from day one uh, and we have two types of funds some that are single family QOFs Uh, Where you know if you've got 25 million in gain, we'll set up a single-family QOF for you. And at each fork in the road, the family gets to decide what to do with the cash. So when there's a cash-out refi event, or sale of a pad, or check that comes in from operational cash flow, they can sit on the cash in their qua for up to 12 months. Uh, But at some point, it either needs to be distributed to to satisfy the 90% test or you know, be invested in another qualified opportunity zone project, but they get to decide at each fork in the road whether to take the money out. So, if the investor needs the money and needs cash flow, uh, the money can go out tax free when it's generated at the project level. Mm-hmm. If they don't need it, it gets recycled into another project and another project and another project, and they get to weigh in on which types of projects. We have some clients who uh, are more conservative and would like a tenant and con- or a a certificate of occupancy play. I think you've talked about that where you can get new use. You can go buy a building in an op zone that's almost complete. Uh, you're paying top dollar for it, but it's less risk. There's no developmental risk because it's nearly done. You get your certificate of occupancy, you put it into play, and it's cash flowing within, you know, nine or twelve or eighteen months. It's it's essentially uh, like
0: a, a 24 or 36 month shortcut in 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 many cases. That's right. Where you don't, right. And and you and yeah. you get to bypass the construction risk completely.
1: That's right. So it's less risk, less return, but that's the right thing for some uh, families and some investors. So we can do more of those projects for them. Other people like new construction. Other people like rehab. Most of our projects are rehab projects. You can go to our website and check them out. We've got projects across the country from the state of Washington to the state of Florida and all over. But uh, we like rehab for the tax efficiencies I mentioned at the top of the program. Uh, uh, but the single family QOF, the investor family gets to weigh in on portfolio composition of which projects and which types of projects and which geographic and which developer. We have a, uh, unlike most opportunities and funds which are uh, operated by developers for their own projects, we have a broad network of real estate developers that we have a long standing working relationship with. Uh, and that's who we're utilizing for uh, deploying the capital. Uh, and we're, you know, most of our projects, we are providing the sole source of capital through our family of 10 QOFs, uh, to control all of it and control the costs and, uh, try to keep the expenses down. Um, some people no, don't yeah, have 25 that. million a capital gain. So our other option is we have multi-investor funds where we'll do every year, but we'll have almost like twins where one strategy mm. reinvests and the other multi-investor fund distributes the cash flow. and we've had some investors that have split, you know, put half their you know million dollars a gain into one and half into another or whatever. Some people need the cash flow, some people don't. Uh, but we do have the option even if you have as little as a hundred thousand gains to put it into an opportunity zone strategy where the dividend checks aren't sent out to you or rather they're reinvested, reinvested in another project and another project, which we believe we can do at least until twenty twenty seven or early twenty twenty eight. After that, uh, then the money just gets distributed out because the you know the Opportunity Zone program is um, going to sunset, uh, right. but the holdings you have will be grandfathered in, uh, and you can continue to own and operate those programs until 2047. But we will not be able to recycle more cash flow, which is another reason to shorten the timeline and do rehab over new construction because you can get to the finish line faster on rehab, just like, uh, you know, because you're cutting out. Like, uh, you know, like, I don't know how long it would take to build 26 story towers, but we've talked about, you know, one of our projects in Reno, it has uh, three towers, 26 stories, 24 stories, and 18 stories. They were hotel rooms, we're converting them to apartments, but the timeline to make that existing structure into apartments has to be, you know, years shorter then the timeline would be to build that brand new.
0: Right. We're ground up. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask, Kirk, can you tell us more about GPWM funds that you haven't already shared with us? I'd love to hear a little bit more about your approach, what you do exactly, and, and who are your investors typically?
1: Our investors, uh, our first wave of investors came from our uh, family office. We ran a family office where we did uh, taxes, estate planning. Uh, I'm a tax lawyer by background. Uh, we would do the, even the employment agreement. If you were CEO of some tech company and moving to some others, I'd negotiate the employment agreement uh, for my clients and, and multiple clients who are venture capitalists and CEO several times over, uh, in, uh, Silicon Valley and the tech space going back to the 1990s. And those, uh, same families are our core families that, you know, started out, uh, uh, you know, around the time that the second batch of proposed regulations were being promulgated. Uh, coincidentally, we had three clients who had monetization events triggering over hundred million in capital gain. Uh, and I was aware of the statute and I was aware of the first batch of regulations. Uh, and we were looking at every opportunity zone fund out there to try to find a way to uh, not pay tax on over hundred million in gains. Uh, And every Opportunity Zone fund we looked at was a 10-year and in a day strategy, really missing the boat on the potential for long term. Uh, They also were not reinvesting cash flow. They were all sending money back out. Well, these are super wealthy families that don't need the cash flow. They have plenty of other liquid assets. Uh, They don't need the cash flow from that. So that was also uh, minimizing the opportunity. They were missing the big opportunity in the Opportunity Zone fund which was 25 years and reinvestment of cash flow. And they were also charging exorbitant fees. So um, uh, my partner and I, uh, when we saw the second batch of the proposed regulations and we saw how uh, the treasury department had made it even more friendly uh, to the investor uh, when we saw where the momentum was heading and we were we guessed right on that, the final regulations made it even more friendly for the investor still. We said, we can't waste this opportunity. So um, we pivoted. Uh, I no longer do tax returns. I no longer handle uh, conventional investments like stocks, bonds, mutual funds. I no longer do the comprehensive wealth management for the family office clients. Instead, all I do and all my partner does is the Opportunity Zone Fund space. Uh, And like I said, word spread about our approach, about how uh, long-term hold was better than 10 years, about reinvesting cash flow was better, uh, I've never been a KPMG client. I have a lot of respect for the firm, but they heard about what I was doing. And you know they invited me long before COVID hit to do a presentation at their San Francisco Opportunity Zone conference. My phone's been ringing ever since. So our first wave were tech investors that we had known uh, since the 90s. Uh, after that, it's just been people who have capital gains and don't want to pay tax uh, and also want to maximize the opportunity that this legislation presents. And so um, that's where, and like I said, uh, fast forward to today, we're raising money now for our 10th fund.
0: And and you mentioned uh, a while ago earlier in the conversation that oftentimes your QOF is the sole provider of capital or a very large Mm -hmm. provider of capital into some of these developments. How does that help you negotiate uh, preferred terms or or co GP shares or what 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 are you getting when you when you come in uh, swinging that big bat sometimes?
1: Yeah, we significantly reduce the fees and the cost uh, to the investors. We're familiar, you know, we've been on the side of evaluating funds and read PPMs for you know decades. We, we're familiar with the tricks of the trade, and uh, we're all about what's in the best interest of the client. So. Uh, our developers like working with us because uh, we're repeat customers bringing a big check so they can do more projects, more projects, more projects. Um, But in exchange for that, we insist that, you know, their compensation is uh, reduced on each project because they don't have to deal with dozens of random investors. They don't have the risk of doing their dog and pony show and trying to raise capital and the uncertainty of, are they going to be able to raise capital for their project uh, we also like being in the catbird seat where we look at dozens and dozens and dozens of projects from all types of developers all across the country, and we can really be picky and pick and choose just the right ones for, uh, you know, for our investors. The other thing that gives the investors peace of mind is as we're continually raising capital, which we will do as long as the opportunity zone legislation allows us to, uh, we can put capital from the current fund that we're raising money Side by side with capital from a uh, operations or cash out refi or sale of pad, you know, some early fund will get cash flow back into their fund from some event at the QOZB level. Well, those cash those dollars can go side by side with the new investor dollars that are coming in into the projects, and so uh, even if we're raising money uh, now, uh, and you know, uh, there's a project that hits our desk that we really like we can drop money from five different funds if five of them have cash available to be deployed. And so they all take advantage of the pipeline of projects that we've got through our outstanding network of developers. And only if we pass on the deals, do our developers take those projects to the street and go raise money for it.
0: Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, We talked a little bit about your strategy. Uh, You like rehab. You like qualified improvement property. Um, we talked a little bit about cost segregation. By the way, I just actually discussed cost cost segregation in detail on the previous episode of this podcast. Uh, my interview with Valerie Grundusky and Jeremy Samples at Plant Moran just last week. Uh, so very timely here. Um, but uh, what what other investment strategies do you like when it comes to opportunity zone investing? Kirk, can you expound on your investment strategy a little bit more? And maybe yeah, maybe we- you can tell us. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about. Um, some more of your pipeline deals. You mentioned Reno. I, th- I think you've got South Bend in the works as well. to assist, yeah. Spill it all for us. Tell us what you got. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Thanks, what you like. Jimmy. Uh,
1: we've been heavy real estate investors for a very long time. In fact, if you're a if you're a tech guy and you've got fifty million in company stock from an IPO or an acquisition and fifty thousand in your checking account and you're liquidating your first slice of the pie, and real estate is a great diversifier and always has been. Uh, we're heavy into real estate. I've been exposed to real estate investing forever. Uh, I grew up with it. Uh, my mom was a, a lawyer, uh, did a lot of work with the wealthy. She uh, worked at a law firm in Beverly Hills, uh, fine Persick and Friedman, a, a, a nice uh, a mid-sized firm. Some of their clients were Dr. Jerry Buss and the Lakers and uh, other wealthy celebrities. So I've heard stories uh also did a lot of work with the charitable stuff and philanthropic and setting up charitable foundations and things like that. So, But real estate has been a big part of our portfolio for our clients uh, from day one. So we know a lot about real estate. We've got a lot of developers that we worked with for many years. Um, and like I said, our approach is to diversify. Our approach is to reduce risk. Uh, we like multifamily. We like self storage in the right markets. Self storage in some areas has been way oversaturated. So you got to be careful about that. But if you can find a market where there's barriers to entry and not a lot of competition, then self storage is a great uh, cash flow generator and a real stable and defensive, especially in this inflationary environment. We like uh, multifamily. We like apartments. People need places to live. There's tons of cities you had this demographic shift where people can work from home. So, you know, I live in a suburb of Boise. Well, you know, rents here are skyrocketing. They've been up 40%, you know, over the last couple of years. That's a great, it's, it, it sucks if you're renting, but it's great if you're uh, the landlord and own the apartments. So uh, we have a couple of projects in Reno, a couple of big projects in Reno. Um, like I mentioned, one of them had three towers. Uh, it used to be The Harris Casino and Hotel are owned by Caesars. And Caesars and Eldorado were in a merger. And if you know Reno, Reno is becoming this tech, uh, it's having this tech explosion. You've got Tesla there. Uh, Apple put its uh, data storage center there in 2012. You got something in iCloud. It's probably physically located in Reno. Uh, All of the big tech firms have data storage centers coming in there Uh, and it's booming. Uh, I found a 150 square foot old hotel room, tiny hotel room, And you can rent for 750 bucks a month and had a waiting list. That's five bucks a foot, uh, 150 square feet for 750 bucks a month. There's just as no inventory for housing. so But they had a glut of hotel rooms because nobody's going to Reno for gambling and entertainment anymore. Uh, So we're converting the hotel into apartments. The views are gorgeous. Uh, It's a block from the river. You can see Tahoe, you're, uh, you know, uh, it's literally right by the biggest little city in the world, Arch sign, if you're familiar with the market. Um, and we bought it uh, uh, as that merger between Eldorado and Caesars was happening. And we were the sole source of capital for uh, for this project. And uh, we uh, we got a very favorable entry point on the price per square foot. Very, very, very attractive entry point. Uh, and now we're rehabbing it and uh, should be done later this year, early next year, coming online. It's a massive project with well over a million square feet. What I love about it is the apartments. We had nearly a 1,000 hotel rooms. We're going to end up with between five and 600 apartments uh, when all is said and done. That's what we love about it. Uh, but it also comes on top of a ton of square feet for where the casino floor was, where all of the restaurants were, uh, the convention space. Uh, and all of that is commercial space uh, which we are converting into, you know, the restaurants are going to stay restaurants instead of casino floor, there'll be a grocery store and uh, other commercial tenants, you know, there'll be a gym, there'll be, I don't know, a tanning salon and nail salon, stuff like that, uh, stuff that people want to have in their uh, area, the restaurants are staying restaurants, all of our expenses to improve the non-residential space on the interior buildings is that qualified improvement property. And we think our first year write-off from that on the 2022 return when that's all placed in service will be greater than the cash in the deal meaning all of the gain that was deferred that ended up in that deal we completely written off on their 26 return just from the first year passive losses from the qip deduction qualified improvement property is that where you get 100 percent write-off if it's placed in service this year uh that's the qip deduction it, it drops from 100 to 80 to 60 and 40% each year going forward, but it's still an incredibly powerful tool to accelerate depreciation deductions. So that's a, you know, that's, that's a project. And then when it's leased up and stabilized, we're going to do a cash out refi. We think we'll get all of our money back on the cash out refi uh, for that type of a project. Um, they're building across the street from us five-story apartments uh, over 400 bucks a square foot our total cost on this deal should be around 200 and change a square foot. Mm. So we're pretty confident we'll get all of our money back on a cash out refi, which again, if you're one of our investors, you could have the choice if you're a larger investor to take the money out tax-free or recycle it into another project. If you're a smaller investor, it depends on which path you're in, whether it gets recycled or kicked out to you tax-free. Um, yeah. And then we own and operate for another 20 years. Um, If we need to monetize it again and the market allows, you can do another cash out refi in the future, return money tax-free. Otherwise, you're just kicking out cash flow from operations. Um, But people should get their money back and then still get a dividend check uh, or recyclable dividend check uh, after the cash out refi event happens.
0: Yeah. Then that, that's impressive how much more cheaply you're able to do that than replacement cost. that building, that new construction building going in across the street from you. That sounds like an incredible deal too with the QIP. Uh, we just wanted to reiterate one more time in case uh, someone didn't get that. Uh, you're able to write off enough in the first year such that your investors won't have any capital gains tax liability due for their 2026 returns. Is that right? If
1: they are an investor who rolled over gain from if they the sale that special of a code passive that, that activity, the gain code B, right? Yeah, they have to have yeah. gain from a ca- passive activity, and they have to report it as gain from a passive activity uh, with the special gain code B on the form eighty nine ninety seven. But yes, if all of our projects are rehab projects, just like that big Reno, and we have several who are, you know, I don't know what my next project is going to be, mm-hmm. but if every single one of my projects is like, and we have several that are with those same. Uh, very similar parameters in terms of uh amount of uh capital or uh, qip deductions that you can get Uh, yeah that's that's basically the, the game plan and if we continue to execute like we have then that'll be the result but certainly for those that are in it if they rolled gains from passive activities in uh you know to the extent they got exposure to Reno, the gain that went to the Reno, we have two Reno projects, very similar uh, metrics. Um, Both of those are going to generate more losses uh, from QIP than I think we have cash in the deal. And both of them should generate a cash out refi uh, that returns 100% of the capital. And that's the holy grail of what you're trying to do here uh, is get enormous returns, transform a city, do it in a tax efficient way. We're doing all of that. And what gets me most excited is the lives that are being changed too. You know, like there's no housing there. Uh, There's a lot of development happening there. Uh, One of our competitive advantages for our workers there is we opened up two of our towers, had asbestos, but one of them didn't. And it had 390 hotel rooms that were just dormant. So we uh, opened up 150 of them to our workers and let them stay there rent free. Hmm. So they got their own hotel room, which is now their apartment, uh, and there's a way to program the elevators so that you know they only have access to their floors. Uh, we continue to operate uh, as Reno Suites. One of the you know another 200 of the rooms. So if you want, you can go stay there. It doesn't have room service, no amenities, no nothing. It's just really uh, no frills right now. But we're generating cash flow because there's such demand for housing there. Uh, But I, I mean, I remember uh, some of the workers that we hired and trained and got the certification for asbestos lead and mold remediation. They didn't know what asbestos was before they started working there, but they got a new certification that we paid for. That's a life skill that they, uh, they got a roof over their head. That's safe. I mean, there are people there whose lives have been changed because uh, of that. I remember one guy who, uh, did construction work and broke his back in a mountain bike accident, lost his job because couldn't do construction work with the back brace. They wouldn't let him wear the back brace, uh, lost his apartment. He was living in a car near our project. And one of our shift workers, shift supervisors met him, invited him to come down and apply long story short. He doesn't even live on site anymore. He got his certification. Got an apartment with us in one of those hotel rooms. uh, Made more money with his specialization than he did before. He now bought himself a new car. Has you know ten thousand in his checking account. He was so proud about that. And living in his own apartment offsite now. Like people's lives have been changed from this project, and it's transforming the core of downtown Reno. It is. It covers nearly two entire city blocks. At the heart of downtown Reno, so this this is our most massive project, uh, but it's one that's going to have incredible returns for the investors and an incredible impact on an incredible city that I'm really excited about.
0: Yeah, that's that's Kirk. very impactful. Um, we're uh, going really long. We're we're just about out of time, Kirk. But uh, you told me a little bit about your South Bend project. I'm a Notre Dame guy, so I want to hear. What give, give me the elevator pitch on the South Bend project. What do you got going Our, on there? The
1: latest project is another rehab project. There's a project near South Bend, near Notre Dame campus, uh, and across the street is some graduate student housing that rents nicely, gets good rents. Uh, this happened to be a medical office building with this huge parking lot. Uh, and as I understand it, there used to be a hospital near there that moved away. For whatever reason, this medical office building has been vacant and dormant uh, and no, no demand for it. Uh, But it's a great location close to campus. So we're going to take the medical office building and convert it to apartments might have ground floor, light retail, you know, convenience store type stuff or whatever. So we get a little bit of QIP deduction on the ground floor space, convert it to apartments, uh, and then build new apartments in the big, huge parking lot that we don't need. So uh, right by Notre Dame.
0: Fantastic. So. Well, I'll look forward to checking that one out uh, at some point in the future. Uh, Kirk, it's been great catching up with you and talking with you today. Um, I'm glad we we're able to make this work. Finally, I've been trying to get you on the podcast uh, since we since we had lunch that one day a few months back. I'm glad our schedules finally uh, got got in sync. Uh, before we go, if we have listeners or viewers out there who want to learn more about you and GPWM funds, uh, where can they go to learn more?
1: Uh best place is our website, gpwmfunds.com. There's a list of all of our projects there. You can see them uh, uh, and check them out uh, or reach out to us. Uh, you can put my email up in your show notes or phone number. And uh, uh, like I said, we're raising money now for our 10th fund uh, and uh, continue to look for projects and look for capital and uh, help people find a very tax-efficient way uh, to make an impact in these communities.
0: Terrific. Well, uh, we will do that. We'll make sure we share all of our con, all of your contact information with our listeners and viewers. They can find those on our show notes for today's episode, which will be available at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And of course, there we'll have links to all of the resources that Kirk and I discussed on today's show. And also, please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Kirk, thanks again so much. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jimmy. It's great to be, uh, great to catch up with you and uh, really appreciate the invite to your show.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.